This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors who strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes your valuable home is for you the project replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble free your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors the college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home what to look for in replacement windows how to borrow sensibly against home equity and more college teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune their suggestions are great for roi it's time for your valuable home Okay, Kev, we got another replay coming up, another show coming up, and we got a Your Valuable Home regular almost. Yeah, he's been on before. Hey, before we get started, I know you and I uh, discussed this before when we were on broadcasting. We always wanted to give a shout out to a lot of our listeners that have been listening to the show faithfully through all the years. As you and I talked about, one of our biggest listeners outside the United States has been the country of Singapore. Singapore. How about that? So I want to give a shout out to everybody in Singapore, and thanks for listening to the Your Valuable Home podcast. Tom's on the air now as a friend of ours uh, of the Your Valuable Home friend of mine neighbor also had him on last year in 2022 talking about a kitchen right we decided to uh take on another project with him so tom's going to do is talk about what his idea and thoughts were to start this project so tom hey thanks again for coming on your valuable home and uh, what was that project you wanted to do sure um we have a two-story house that looks somewhat like a rancher Second floor, uh, someone retrofitted it up there. We love the space, but it has a long hallway with no windows. And we needed some windows and some fresh air up there. That was the primary reason we reached out to Kevin to figure out what to do. What were our options? Kev directed us to Matt, the architect. Um, We kind of talked about our vision, what we wanted. He drew up some nice drawings for us, and we eventually aligned on something that was pretty darn close to really what we we wanted to see in the end. Probably not the easiest job, Kevin, I don't think you had to do. But, um, you know, it's just about done now and looking great. Yeah, that's one of the things we're going to definitely talk about in the next phase is like the details that we had to go into. It's all about cosmetic. You know, when you're talking about with a customer, what are you going to be doing? What's the end result of that house and what's it going to look like? Now, one thing nice is that the windows were prior to when we started the job done already. There were the Pro-V Aris window. So we added two more windows in these live dormers that are Pro-V Aris windows. windows. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. So you want to have that cosmetic look. And by having that, keeping the flow of the house, there was a lot of work that was getting into the roof line. Now, live dormers were... You have a slant on a roof. When you're walking, say, like in a bedroom that was built years ago. It's like a channel. Yes. You Mm -hmm. see the slope of the roof coming up, so it gets a little tight when you're close to the end. This was a dormer. Imagine at that slope roof, you take a wall and just shove it and push it outside so you have a little bit more space and be able to put a full window in. So we put two of those in, and it's called live dormers that we put in so that it's usable. It's a fully functional dormer that we put in. It really looks 
Nice. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot going into this and how to do it, but we had to also do the roofing too. With doing this, there was a lot of roof that we had to start stripping out when we started prepping to do everything. Yeah, and we we'll, had to do the whole roof over, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah that, that was one thing. So Tom, what was one of the uh, the colors that uh, you had chosen and one of the colors that your wife chose? I know you guys different had different ideas of color. You know, you look around at roofs and you see a lot of different things once you start to take notice of them. My wife really likes that nice, really dark black looking roof. The house is a very light gray with a Wedgwood blue shutters with a white trim and that black roof just really jumped out. Not the color I wanted. So I kind of deferred to her and um, I'm not going to admit it in front of her, but she made the right decision <laughs> in the end. Yeah, she definitely yeah. So you don't want, It just looks great. You don't want her to listen to this or you want her to listen to this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to tell her about it. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> well, we were talking about the kitchen back in June of last year. Uh, Tom wanted this sage avocado color for the inside walls of the, the new kitchen that we just bought. Right. So Tom's wife comes up and says, hey, listen, can you talk to him about maybe changing the color? I'm like, well, what color did he choose? And she showed me the picture of the color that Tom wanted me to, to paint the walls. So we tried tooth and stone, Dave and I, to try to get an idea of, hey, Tommy, what do you think about this color? He's like, nope. That's the color I wanted. So we did it. But your wife did pick a beautiful roof that really accents everything. So we don't ask Tom for colors anymore. We just go right to his wife and say, hey, what color should we use? Kevin, everyone loves that color too, by the way. Okay. (laughs) You know, whenever you're doing something around your house, it's always a little bit of give and take on both sides. Oh, yeah. Or actually all parties, you know, Mm -hmm. the builder, the homeowner, the husband, the wife, et cetera. (laughs) But in the end, we were really big sticklers on the windows. We want the best window out there. We had a look we wanted that simulated divided light. You know, we have those windows all throughout the house and we wanted the exact same thing because they are just really nice. SDLs are simulated divided light. So what it looks like when you have a double hung window and you have the grids in it most of the grids you see on today's windows are grills between glass these are actually applied on the inside and outside so you can actually feel individual panes with the grids that separate hmm. each one of those lights that are in there which is hmm. the grids yeah and it looks that. awesome yeah. the house actually looks more in place because the skylights didn't give it total justice because it was a nice slope roof, a salt box house, where you have a full second floor, but it's all roof when you see it. Now with these windows, it's more symmetrical because there's pairs of windows throughout the place. Now it looks better because it's not just one big blah roofing, it's dormers that are gorgeous with it. And these windows really do It breaks up Mm -hmm. up the black expanse on the roof too, right? Right. So we're gonna talk a little bit more detail because there's a lot more work that we actually did to this. And we're gonna talk about the inside and what he's gonna be using it for. It's a little bit more detail. So if anybody's gonna be using a live dormer or having their contractor across anywhere in the country to do live dormers, what you're gonna have to go through to go this because number one it's it's the homeowner want what they want and we're gonna talk about how the contractor's gotta work with you because we're gonna give you some really nice tips on how if you do hire somebody that they have to go through these steps because if not, it's gonna be a, a nightmare. So Tom, hang on tight for us to get finished up this job. And then I'm going to have you back on next week to talk about the finished job as we get uh, yeah, through this process. That. Absolutely. Let's All right. That's no problem, yeah. Kevin. Okay. I'd be happy to join. All right. We'll call you back at uh, one week's time. Kev, I, I understand you got a really unique horror story today. Something about a contractor being approved by the uh, HOA where this actually <laughs> lives and... <laughs> The contractor was far under bar, right? Uh, when an HOA approves a contractor, wouldn't you think they'd be somewhat decent? And I said, listen, like, here's my cell phone number. FaceTime me and let me see what they did in the leaks. And I'll, I'll kind of help you work through it because it's 
pretty far from here in a different state. So she said, no problem. So we started with the roofing. She said the roofing was just done prior to this. She couldn't get up on a roof, but she will show me pictures of all the leaking. So as I followed her through the steps and, and talking about when did the leaks come, we had a rain that was about a month ago around here that it rained pretty hard and it flooded in. Now, again, the, the roof's less than a year old. So as I was looking at it, I said, well, that's the flashing area where the two roofs meet. They probably never replaced the flashing. So I said, but that could be fixed. Yeah, if you're going to guess that, that's a good guess, right? Yeah, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much. But here's the funny one that is that they had the windows replaced by the same company that our HOA approved. And I talked to her a few times about some of the things that I do because I, I work in a lot of HOAs locally. But I said, when an HOA approved contractor comes in and does the work, now they don't have to pay for the windows to be replaced. It's all part of it because they had an assessment. And I said, look, I have a place that I have, they did an assessment for the siding, but I, I get it. But you're probably held responsible for the interior. They did an assessment or they accrue in the HOA fee for windows? This was an additional assessment. Ah, so it wasn't okay, part of the fee, okay. but they gave an assessment, she said about three years ago. And then by time uh -huh. uh, the monies were, were there that they started doing the windows and the roof. Okay. It's not a big community and it looked pretty nice, but it probably about 25 years old, this community said that windows had to be replaced. So I said to her, well, let's talk about what did they do? She said, well, they pulled the window out, they put the window in. And I said, hey, did you watch her video? And so she just jumped on board while she was talking to me on FaceTime. She put the video on. She goes, oh, they didn't do any of that. No, 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 no. None of that was done. I said, you listen to the show. And she said, well, that's why I'm calling you because something doesn't seem right. So what they did was they kept sending the company out and caulking around the window. Here's the funny part about caulking a window. A good contractor is going to put a nice bead on, maybe put their finger down it so it looks clean and fresh. Imagine getting a butter knife or a pastry knife and then putting all this caulk around. I've never seen anything like this. And it was all over the place. So I said, to her, well, if the window was leaking in certain areas, why were they caulking so far away from the window? She's like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, so I'm calling you. Ron, I've never seen such a sloppy job before. And this was an HOA. So they weren't trying to cover up something some blemish or malfunction they were just sloppy <laughs> i wouldn't go that far they're worse than that silicone doesn't fix everything it's a band-aid on a product that somebody's done wrong underneath right. from the beginning it's a quick fix but once that problem starts rising whether it's going to be windows whether it's going to be siding whether it's going to be roofing 99.9 percent .9 of the time it's going to be issues from the underlayment. The only way I always tell people, listen, if you're doing your siding, where if you're putting new siding on where the J channel meets, say a stucco chimney, a block chimney, there's really no way to get under there, so you have to caulk it. But if you have an area where you have flashing on a roof and you have the availability to take the siding back, run ice and weather shield up the wall, then flash it, then put a Tyvek overlayment over top of that and seal it, you're never gonna have a leak. Mm -hmm. So I said, my best guess with that amount of water coming in, what they did was they were sliding the old pieces up and down, never nailed the last piece and it slid down up in that corner because the water that hits in there meets that at two roofs were just pouring inside our house. The roof was there for 25 years. She said it never leaked. The roof was done and now they're having leak issues. So that means it's a, a flashing issue. Very rarely does water come in through the, the shingle itself. It's all about the underlaying with the flashing that we talked about several times on the show. That was the one big thing. They said they're going to come out, but I said, tell them no silicone. You shouldn't be silicone flashing it. Once you get the flashing in, if it's all done correctly, you don't need it. You, you don't, don't need, need it. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I even said to her, I, I'll do you one better. Why don't we do this? Call that company or do the same thing when I'm there. 
you can FaceTime me and I'll talk to the gentleman who's there or whoever's doing the work and we'll walk through those steps. Maybe he can get up on the roof because he's the approved contractor. As I said, I don't want you getting up there. No, have somebody no. that's authorized to do it and then we'll take a look at it before they do any work. So she said, they're not going to do that. And I said, well, I get it, but at least they're going to at least make an attempt that they're not going to lie to you at this point. Everybody lies and says, oh yeah, well, listen, we'll, we'll get up there and we'll fix it. So what they're doing is they're making it sound like it's still an unforeseen problem that she has to pay for the interior. Listen, if your contractor screws something up, pay for it. You did something wrong. You should fix the mistakes. Correct it. Yeah, correct. Make it right. Her answer was, they told me to put it in insurance claim. Her <laughs> homeowner's insurance claim. I'm like, well, no, it should be the contractor's insurance claim. You yeah. shouldn't be putting that yeah, in. Yeah, there's no way. I, her, her insurance is not going to pay off on something like that, right? No, no, it's the damage by the contractor. By the contractor, yeah. Right. And, and if they say it's, if they find out if it's poor workmanship, they don't pay on poor workmanship. The insurance is only going to pay on the damage that was occurred on the interior. Exactly. So yeah. you're going to have this fixed. It's probably going to cost you about $1,500. He said you had a $1,000 deductible. So I said, you're going to get a strike against you and it's still going to cost you 500 bucks. Just pick up and do it. If, at, at that point, just do it yourself. But yeah. really, it shouldn't be her problem. The next thing was, well, why don't we do this? Why don't you get three estimates, choose a contractor, do it, and then we'll send you the check. I said, well, why are you doing all this work on their mistake? She's like, that's what they tell me to do. I'm like, tell them to go fix it themselves. Yeah, right, exactly. This is, welcome to the new industry. So I'm not gonna say what state it was in, but I'd like to go over there and just have a conversation with most of these people. That's why was it, when we were in North Carolina, they said I'm the most hated contractor. In North Carolina? Yeah, well, the reason why is because everywhere I go, is people are like, why are you informing homeowners of the correct way to do it? We wanna make shortcuts, is basically what they're saying. And I'm exposing so you're getting, it. you're getting flack from contractors uh, in North Carolina? In North Carolina, yeah. I got a lot of flack from a couple of people in North Carolina. I get it from everybody. If I go to the, one of the box stores around here and they know me, I get a few curse words shouted out. Oh, yeah, it's good. I, I feel better that I'm doing so my job. what you want to do is wear like a Groucho Marx disguise when you go out or something. Well, I just met a new listener. Uh, it was probably a couple of days ago. And I dress with my VSP shirt on. I do the work. Everybody knows I do the work. And by doing the work, it makes it very simple that you see that I'm doing the work. But when I show up, I'm not showing up in a fancy suit. I don't, I don't even own a suit. So I just walk in there and not many people know unless they get that really deep voice and speak it that way. When they hear that, most of the times when they hear that voice, they heard the show, the contractors, I, yeah. Even the people that work there that I got pretty friendly with at the box stores even say, wow, that was neat to have somebody yell at you. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's probably because they got, they're getting sued because I said something on the show, like how to properly do roofing or how to properly do a siding or window job and they did it wrong and now they're upset with me. So they're gonna just vent on me instead of doing the job right. Does that make sense to you? You're gonna yell at me because you're No, sub. it doesn't make, but a lot, of, a lot of stuff that goes on in the contracting world doesn't make a lot of sense. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. Well, it's all about people trying to just get in, get out, get the money, and they don't care about you. And I've said this a ton of times in the past probably year now, with my company. But we can't say that of all contractors, too. I mean, no. they're the good contractors out there, too. There, yeah. I know a good handful of contractors, but everybody else, I've, I've asked how many times on the show, hey, listen, uh, if we speak through somebody through social media, no problem. Let me come to your job and let me pick the job so you don't know I'm coming. I don't need to enter the property or stand on the street and let me look at your workmanship. No. Well, why not? If you're doing the job right, let me see your work. Nobody wants to see that because it's the shortcuts being made. When I sign my jobs up, I tell people, listen, show up at my job at any time, except Fridays in the summertime, but stop by any time. Well, when do you want us to come? I don't want to give you a date. You show up anytime you want. This way, you know I'm there when I'm doing the work. Dave and I are there doing the work. If you can't be as transparent as possible with homeowners, what's the sense of doing a job? That's what I was trying to tell people. If they don't ask, answer a lot of questions, they're trying to get around certain things. And like I said, when 
people always tell me, you know, I, I Googled your name in your company and in the first two locations, it says temporary close. I'm like, yeah, I, I know I still have that there. Well, why don't you get that changed? I said, well, because if I have 15 people a day calling me to do work, I can't handle that. We're already about a year and a half booked now. And the people that call me are referrals or repeat business. And all they say is, put me in for the schedule. That's it. I don't even give people the price until we get closer because they know they can trust me with it. Well, you can't. This, in this day and age, costs keep going up all the time, right? Correct. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're stabilizing as we get along. It's been better and better and better, but it's that trust. And I just tell people, hey, look, here's the price, and it's about a month prior. If you don't want to use this, you don't have to. But I've still, in 34 years, had everybody going, well, we're trying to rip me off. Because I try to let people know if you do that, you're not going to be getting the repeat business. Of course not. And that's why I stick that way. The only reason I don't want all these people calling me that don't know us, if you're calling for estimates, because I'm not that company. I'm not your company. I'm a company that wants to come in and work for somebody that does uh, wants great work and appreciates what we do. So that's the horror story. Just uh, if you have any issues, let us know and uh, keep it at yourvaluablehome.net and I'm going to make it pretty easy for you how to fix them. Angus, and stick with us today. We've got part one of an amazing story about the preservation of a million acres of salt marsh in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida is something that you're going to want to hear if you live there, if you live anywhere along the coastal North and South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. It's an amazing project that's being shepherded by the Pew Charitable Trust. We have Cameron Jaggard from Pew on to tell us the story. It's part one is this week. Part two will be next week. We'll be back after we take a quick break. We've been telling our listeners about Provia entry doors and windows, but there's a lot more to Provia, right, Kev? Yeah, you bet. Provia is your one source for professional class entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and incredible metal roofing. In fact, Provia makes all the product you need to create the perfect home exterior. They do it all the Provia way, the professional way. Hey, Kev, didn't you just use Provia siding and doors on your home? Yep, the look of my siding and doors have landed me a ton of work. Okay, so what sold you on Provia vinyl siding? The same that sells my customers. Provia Siding Reflex Heat protects against UV rays and solar heat buildup that ensures long-lasting color. Then there's a range of traditional, insulated, and decorative siding profiles, all with the look and feel of real wood. And a selection of now colors, including dark and bold hues. So, what's your take on Provia manufactured stone? The molds of Provia stone are created from natural stones, giving it a quarried stone look with a great range of shapes and sizes. Customers love them, and the 10 choices of color palettes, Provia stone goes with any environment. To see how Provia Siding and Stone combine to create the Provia Perfect Exterior with great curb appeal, visit Provia.com. Click on Designer Collections under the Design It tab. Hey, Kevin here, installing another Provia entry door. I do about 50 or more a year. Schlage knobs, hardware, and handle sets make a great complement to any Provia fiberglass or steel entry door. Provia and Schlage, I think, are the best combination of curb appeal, style, and security money can buy in entry doors. And Schlage now has a complete line of Wi-Fi locks, including the new Encode Plus, which can be locked or unlocked with the tap of an Apple Watch. Amazing. Provia and Schlage, there's no better combination for entry doors. Okay, Ron, now it is time for the feature segment, and it looks like we got a couple-parter coming up here for the next couple weeks. This is a very important couple-parter. This is part one of a special two-part feature this week and next. This is vital information for our listeners who reside or vacation in coastal North and South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. All of this coastal geography is protected by salt marsh, which probably a lot of people don't know. Salt marsh serves as the first line of defense against storms and rising seas. It also processes much of the carbon 
this is important. Human activities generate along the East Coast and does so much more than that, too. Here to brief our listeners on the benefits of 1 million acres of salt marsh along the southern portion of the Atlantic coast, the challenge of protecting and preserving it. The plan to do that is Cameron Jaggard from the Pew Charitable Trust. Cameron, welcome back to your valuable home. We've covered this important subject with you about, a, I think it was about a year ago, but a lot has happened since then. It's, it's great to be back with you. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share all the news. A lot of great things have happened in the, the last year or so. We've, we've had a huge outpouring of support and collaboration and also funding directed towards developing and promoting a plan to save the future of the South Atlantic salt marsh, as well as uh, for programs and projects that are needed to help shore up the salt marsh ecosystem and all the benefits it provides to people and to fish and wildlife. We're talking today about 1 million acres of interconnected salt marsh along the coastlines of four East Coast states, an area the size of the Grand Canyon National Park, which is a big, big area. That's right. It's huge. It stretches from North Carolina through about East Central Florida, so where Cape Canaveral area is. It's about a million acre ecosystem, and it makes up the majority of the salt marsh that's found along the U.S. East Coast. Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina together have about two-thirds of the salt marsh along the entire U.S. East Coast, wow. and then Florida has about 83,000 acres. How many total acres of salt marsh are there along all American coastal states? Well, there are about 3.8 million acres of salt marshes in the U.S., and three-quarters of them are located in the southeast. So that includes this area from North Carolina to Florida, so it really is a special part of the U.S. for salt marsh. You can find salt marshes on every coast of the U.S., but the biggest concentrations are those in the southeast. So we've got about half of the nation's salt marshes are located along the Gulf Coast from Texas through Florida, And then another quarter are found in the South Atlantic from North Carolina through East Central Florida. And then the remainder are sort of, you know, scattered about along the coast of Mid-Atlantic and Northeast states and along the Pacific. So basically what you're doing in this chunk of the United States has implications for wherever there's salt marsh in the country. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. These primary challenges that face salt marsh are universal sort of across the globe, things like sea level rise development, both along the coast and of the more upland and inland systems that help support our coastal estuaries. We're all kind of facing some of the same challenges and hopefully a lot of the same solutions can apply just in different ways in different areas. One really impressive thing to me is the fact that you were able to pull together so many partners, individuals, public and private organizations that have agreed to do this. Who's involved and what is Pew's role? I think there are more than 300 organizations and individuals involved in this, including the Department of Defense, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a huge uh, collaborative effort called the South Atlantic Salt Marsh Initiative, and it was officially launched in May 2021. The coalition that SASB brings together is currently over 300 partners strong, and those folks represent local, state, and federal stakeholders from academia, from government agencies, cultural groups, private landowners, communities, and non-governmental organizations. That includes groups like Pew and then more more conservation-focused organizations like the Nature Conservancy. So our role as Pew has largely been focused on bringing together this diversity of local, state, and federal stakeholders to work in partnership towards a shared vision for the future of the U.S. South Atlantic coast. Yeah, and our hat's off to you for that. I mean, today, getting any two people to agree on any one thing 
is difficult. And you got 300 to get this job done. I, it's just quite Don't a, jinx quite a us piece. now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely marvelous. The overall project has a name that our listeners can Google. What is that? The easiest way to learn more about the South Atlantic salt marsh niches, besides listening to the podcast today and, to, and the next one, is to visit the initiative's website at marsh4.org. That's where you can go to learn about SASME, watch a film about SASME, which is really phenomenal and features key leaders from the region, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter and read the plan. I get the Pew publication, and you talk about these, this and other many other subjects in that publication. Can the public subscribe to that? Yeah, you, you can go to pewtrust.org and navigate your way there. We have a number of newsletters that are regional focus or issue-based. I believe you can also get the more general publications from Pew as well. How do salt marshes help control flooding in coastal communities? Along the South Atlantic States, these salt marshes provide us protection. They provide us sustenance and jobs that support national defense, communities, and cultures. Salt marshes function as natural infrastructure that reduces the impacts of storms and flooding. So they absorb storm water and along with neighboring habitats, such as oyster reefs, can help protect against storm surge by buffering wave energy, basically you know, slowing down and breaking up waves. It's really impressive what salt marsh can do when you look at the research that's been done. One acre of salt marsh can absorb up to one and a half million gallons of flood water, which is equivalent to more than two and a quarter Olympic-sized swimming pools. And by absorbing floodwaters and wave energy, salt marshes can decrease property damage in adjacent communities by up to 20%, according to the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. A lot of that data was collected, I think, during Superstorm Sandy. So we have real-world examples where salt marsh has provided uh, really tangible, valuable benefits to coastal populations. So if you want to live near the shore, you want salt marsh in your area. You do. Ideally, you... You don't live too close to the shore and you have a good buffer between you and the marsh. But yes, salt marsh is there acting as a natural breakwater and storage for flood water and all, all the other things that it does. One of the other things they do, which is an important one today, growing in importance day by day, is they trap and store carbon, don't they? Yeah, they are really good at it, actually. They only cover about 2% of the Earth's surface, but salt marshes and other global tidal wetlands like them are estimated to provide about 50% of all the carbon storage in the ocean. And salt marshes and these other coastal wetlands sequester and store carbon at a rate of about 10 times that of a mature tropical forest. And if we keep them healthy and make sure they get sediment, which they need to help build up elevation and fight against sea level rise, they can actually provide a greater potential for mitigating climate change over time than upland habitats. Is it so important? Is it possible to create new salt marsh? Yeah, the, there's been projects done where they, they create habitat. For sure, there's a great example in Jacksonville on the St. John's River. They actually not only restored existing salt marsh, but they added quite a bit. And that was to help with navigational issues and provide habitat and, and other things. So it certainly can be done. I think, you know, our focus uh, with with the Salt Marsh Initiative is to look at how we keep what we have in as good a shape as we can, restore it where it's necessary, and then also look to the future and where it's likely to go. But yeah, definitely salt marsh creation could be one of the tools in the toolbox to help make sure that we protect the million acres. 
Aren't they also important to the majority of commercial and recreational fish species in the country? They are some of the most productive ecosystems on Earth. Um, Salt marshes provide spawning, nursery, and sheltering grounds for over 75% of the region's finfish and shellfish that support fishing and drive those working waterfronts and provide seafood for people, for businesses. They're incredibly important. So brown shrimp, redfish, flounder, oysters, all types of things come from the marsh. And then a number of federally listed species, such as the eastern black rail and the Florida manatee, as well as other high priority species for conservation, like the salt marsh sparrow, depend on salt marshes as well. Well, and the wealth of background information that I received, which was absolutely phenomenal, there was a value per acre assigned to salt marshes. And I I would imagine that came out of Superstorm Sandy too, right? That kind of research. Yeah, it was a larger study. Yeah, they probably could have pulled some of the value from research done in Superstorm Sandy. The total value that they calculated for all the services salt marshes provide people is to be somewhere over $78,000 per acre per year. So if you to take that, it's incredible. And then if you were the multiplier effect and looking at that value and multiplying it by the million acres of marsh we have in the South Atlantic, then the total value of those salt marsh ecosystems services would be about $78 billion a year. And that doesn't even include these sort of less quantifiable but equally important aspects like their cultural value, which we know is is really significant to people and cultural groups along the South Atlantic. That, that's a fantastic figure, $78,000. So it is really a valuable, valuable natural resource. Absolutely. What is salt marsh migration? How important is it and what are the impediments to it? This is really, I think, sort of one of the major challenges of our time. It's not just about how do we keep the salt marsh we have, but we have to recognize that it's being threatened by sea level rise. So as those sea level rises rise comes up, it increasingly inundates and drowns out tidal marsh habitat. So marshes have to be exposed to the air at some point, you know, in the day. But when they the water levels raise enough and they're consistent enough, those marshes will die out. So according to NOAA, we're at risk of losing about 14 to 34% of our existing salt marshes along the South Atlantic by 2060 due to sea level rise alone. That's not counting the other challenges that salt marshes face. And if you have conditions that will allow for salt marshes to shift landward into adjacent lowlands as those sea levels rise, then marsh can migrate over time. Basically, you need those areas that are not developed or that maybe are working lands or other areas that can transition slowly over time to salt marsh. But if you have physical barriers, such as urban areas or roads or hardened shorelines like a seawall or a bulkhead and a steep topography, any of those things can preclude that natural ability of salt marshes to migrate. An organization in the southern coastal states is called SERPAS, S-E-R-P-A-S, SERPAS. played a large role in the organization of all the entities who will be involved in this campaign to save one million acres of salt marsh. What is their vested interest and their role going forward? In May uh, 2021, Pew partnered with the Southeast Regional Partnership for Planning and Sustainability, SERPAS, to form the South Atlantic Salt Marsh Initiative. And what SERPAS is, is it's a six-state partnership in Southeast between the Department of Defense and other federal and state natural resource agencies. The reason those folks came together is they knew that 
any single agency or entity would not be able to accomplish the landscape scale gains that they needed to be able to continue the Department of Defense's mission and to be able to continue with and achieve the goals of these various federal and state agencies. So they came together to promote collaborative decision-making between both public and private partners to support the military, to conserve key habitats and species, to sustain those rural economies and industries that are compatible with these other goals and to foster better coordination among local, state, and federal stakeholders in the Southeast. So they are all about collaborating towards, you know, landscape skill, conservation successes that lift up and help promote these various activities that are beneficial to the land and beneficial to the economy. And so Pew, Surpus, and SASME's 300-member coalition are all working together to protect the salt marsh into the future through a shared goal and a shared plan. How exactly did Pew get involved? Yeah, so Pew's environmental work in the U.S. includes a focus on public lands and rivers protection. We also have a team that's focused on addressing threats like flooding. And then we have the team that I'm a part of, which is the Conserving Marine Life in the U.S. initiative. So our major focus in that is coastal habitat conservation, which includes salt marsh and oysters and seagrass and other things. So a few years ago, Pew conducted a large-scale scoping effort to identify what role we might be able to play in protecting salt marsh into the future. And the South Atlantic South, South Atlantic coast really popped on the maps. It popped in the studies and data as an area where salt marsh was both abundant and healthy and where there was also opportunity in the future land where it could migrate into, could support that future salt marsh migration. And then where there were many independent efforts already underway to benefit salt marsh that if we came together in a coordinated regional approach could be knit together and built on to accomplish much more. That was the thinking, at least. Okay, can you name some of the other organizations and individuals, including scientists who have come together to protect and preserve this one million acres? And in each case, what are their vested interests? Yeah, so I'll try to get a few of them in there. It's a a long list. It's a long list, yeah. Some of the coalition members include state natural resource agencies. So in in Florida, that would include the Florida Department of Environmental Protection and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. In Georgia, that would be the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. I mean, many states have these natural resource departments, um, South Carolina, DNR, and the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality. We also have state-based conservation organizations, such as the North Florida Land Trust, Georgia Conservancy, South Carolina Coastal Conservation League, and the North Carolina Coastal Federation. And then there's over 50 academic representatives from colleges and universities throughout the region. So whether you are a local government state or federal agency and an environmental non-governmental organization or a scientist each of you share a vested interest in supporting the long-term health of salt marshes and the benefits they provide people now the specific benefits for each group in terms of conservation organizations you know they want sustainable salt marsh because they chief of all understand the importance that that those habitats have for wildlife and recreation and other things like that Whereas, you know, maybe a Florida Department of Environmental Protection recognizes that. And then they're also looking at nature-based solutions to support more resilient communities and infrastructure along the coast. So when you zoom in a bit closer into each 
specific state or even to the individual marshes themselves, the neighboring communities, the infrastructure, adjacent marsh or those military installations, the specific interests are a lot more apparent. One state may have healthier salt marsh that is more resilient to sea level rise impacts in the near term, and that would include Georgia. So their interests might be more focused on conserving land for future marsh migration. That's not to say Mm -hmm. you won't do the other things, but just that maybe that's like a primary focus for them and where, you know, their interests lie. While there are other areas like in North Carolina and the Albemarle Pamlico Sound where you might have much less resilient marshes that can't, that aren't keeping pace with sea level rise that are at risk of inundation. So, that would be an area where their interest is in how do we protect and help salt marsh survive in the near term so that they have a future opportunity to migrate. Um, And there are lots of implications there with each of these strategies um, in that particular area. There's a lot of farming that's going on in in areas of Northeast Florida, say Jacksonville or other surrounding areas. It's more coastal populations and, and densely populated cities and that sort of thing. So the interests are certainly varied and all over the map, but uh, everyone agrees that salt marsh, we need it. It's got to be around in the future. And if we work together, we've got a chance at achieving that. The Department of Defense, if you could just zoom in on Paris Island, I had no idea that it was at risk. Yeah, Paris Island is located in South Carolina. It is where they make Marines. Uh, they make Marines. It's yeah. a, it's and it's it's hard to make Marines when your uh, insulation is being flooded by superstorm events or, or other things like that. So Marsh has a really important role to play for them and other installations. Uh, in the South Atlantic, helping protect them and support their continued operation, ready to send base operations. The Gullah Geechee Nation that stretches from, uh, I guess, basically North Carolina, like the Wilmington area, all the way into Florida. And uh, they're all the uh, direct descendants of uh, slaves that came over to the New World when most of them came in around Charleston. What is their vested interest? They are about as intimately connected to the marsh as you could be. Basically, the marsh is part of their family. Their whole culture is kind of based around the marsh. They, you know, their sacred areas, burial grounds, and other things are adjacent to marsh oftentimes. And they all live right there at the front line of sea level rise. So, you know, to them, the, the marshes are sacred. They're also an important source of nourishment and economic opportunity for, say, commercial fishing and and ecotourism and and things like that. And protecting the marsh and the land surrounding them will help sustain their unique culture and way of life. Yeah, it really is. And they've been at it a long, long time, right? Hundreds of years, actually. Typically, you know, their development has not been the kind that is necessarily, um, I guess, incompatible with marshes. They usually have like lower impact development than, say, the massive developments or strip malls or other things that, you know, more typical development might entail. How long have you all been involved in uh, working toward this plan to preserve one million acres of salt marsh, which is called Marsh Forward? It's not March for M-A-R-S-H, Forward, (laughs) the plan. That plan, Marsh Forward, is the pathway for the protection, restoration, migration of the great expanse of salt marshes. It's an actual-oriented 10-year plan. It was released on May 16th, 2023, 
And it's the culmination of over a year of work by SASME's diverse coalition. So it included research to scope key salt marsh topics, including salt marsh migration and conservation and restoration, other things like that, funding. That research was used to help inform the coalition, kind of give us a little base level of understanding uh, where we didn't have it already. And then it prepared them for a week-long workshop where we had over 170 coalition members that really laid the foundation for the plan. And then after that, it's multiple review periods and meetings and other things like that to ensure that we had a broad and diverse engagement of the coalition in developing the plan. So it's really a plan that collectively we all wrote. I think everyone is really eager to implement on the ground. Well, we're going to be talking about that. Listen to next week's podcast where Cam will be back again and we're going to get into the uh, nitty gritty of the plan and how that works. Anybody who isn't in this impacted area right now and wants us to save salt marsh and go on that crusade in their area, they can use that plan as a model or template to do just that, can't they? Yeah, I think that's our hope. You know, you, you do something tailored, you know, tailor fit to the need. I hope that what we've built here with SASME, the coalition and the plan, can have really broad benefits for other initiatives elsewhere in the U.S. and abroad. We have been listening to Cameron Jaggard from the Pew Charitable Trust talk to us about the preservation of salt marsh, a million acres of it, along the eastern coast. Cam will be back with us again next Next week week, to talk to us about the actual plan and what's going to happen. So, Cam, thank you very much. It's been very, very educational. It's fascinating to me. I like getting ready for this interview and uh, because it's just the work that Pew does is just absolutely wonderful in my estimation. Thank you all. Uh, really looking forward to getting back uh, next week to talk more. Hey, Kev, great news on how our listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years. Zero monthly payments? How do they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for Your Valuable Home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing, products made with latest technology and honest old-world craftsmanship. The Provia way. That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on the new Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 